Hello, Ethel. Hello, James. Nice to speak again. <laughs> yes, you. you too. So this time we're going to have a wee look at uh, both book three and book four. I want to start uh, with book three, Desperate Times. And what I wanted to start with, because I find it really interesting, was um, the poem right at the start by Finola Scott. I just wanted to read a wee bit of it. Out on the moss, Brown lifted his head to assume as he cut peat after family worship. In summer mist, he was hanging worth again, Sir Winter. But it wasn't a peasy weep welcoming the morn. It was soldiers. And I think that is quite interesting, um, you know, based on the fact that, you know, there's all this military uh, activity going on in and around through the books. Um, and I found that to be quite interesting. Was that a poem that had already been written or was it something that she wrote, you know, in response to uh, a request? Finola wrote that poem particularly for that book. Right, right. Um, she's, she's very good at tapping in um, to what is actually required mm. to give you the essence of yeah. something. It's a skill that she really does have. Um, so each one is in each book individual. Yeah. And especially for that one. And I feel very honoured that she, uh, you know, goes to that trouble. Mm -hmm. Because it does, to me, it make, does make a difference. Oh, it does, because, I mean, I know a lot of people when they read books, they go straight to the, you know, the first chapter. They don't really Aye. read any of the preamble, if you like. But I'm really, I, I read everything right up mm -hmm. to before I start to read the actual story. I tend um, to be like that too. I think it's because I'm just extra nosy. <laughs> <laughs> possibly, possibly. But also, I like to quote again, this time uh, from Mark Twain, under certain circumstances, profanity provides a relief denied even to prayer. And it made me smile when I read it. And it makes me smile every time I read it. Because... Okay. I think from my point of view, I often find that to be quite true, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I would agree with you, yes. Not being a particularly religious person or profane person, I might mm -hmm. add, but there are times, you know, when I do find a good sweary word helps to relieve the tension. <laughs> well, I, I felt that um, picking that particular quote um, to me was appropriate because as you go through the book, not just John Steele, but various people get to the end of their tether mm. and uh, it bursts out. It's a natural reaction. Yeah. Um, and whether they feel better for it or not, they do it. Mm. And it's a human thing to do. Yeah, um, and, and when I saw it, I thought, well, that does belong there. <laughs> it, it's funny, isn't it, how, you know, you, can, you come across certain things like quotations and stuff like that that just seem to knit really well That's into right. the narrative, you know? Yeah, um, and the thing is, it happens accidentally. <laughs> it, just sort of, it just sort of happens and you think, well, right. Um, and you note it down and then when you go back to it, you think, yes, I could use that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So let's have a wee look towards the book. Cameron has left his mortal coil. Lucas Brotherston is, is back on the run, needing to get to Holland and uh, obviously being ably supported by John Steele once again. Mm -hmm. But there is a twist there. When I started to read it, I was thinking to myself, oh, yeah, we're going to get him back to Holland, and, you know, he's going to settle, and 
things will move along quite nicely. And then you kind of threw the spanner in the works a wee bit with me when he gets caught. That was very deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> Can you maybe give me a wee bit of an insight into why you kind of went along that route? Well, I went along that route because of uh, Lucas's character. Mm. Lucas is a weak man. Yeah. He's a great theorist, but he's not in the real world in a real sense mm. uh, that most people are. Because the real world, when it real world when it touches them, upsets them, and he can't cope with it. And I felt that um, as a minister of the cloth, he was letting himself down and the church in inverted commas yeah. down, and that really he deserves to get some kind of comeuppance. Mm-hmm. So that's why I did it. He's getting his comeuppance. <laughs> So, quite an interesting way to put it. Come up and see, quite a come up and to get as well. Um, it was a bit. To tell you the truth, I quite enjoyed writing that. <laughs> I actually enjoyed reading it as well. You know, oh, well, good. as I said, although it, it was different from what I thought was going to happen with him, once I had gone through the chapters, you know, where he gets caught and, you know, he goes to the Bass Rock and all the rest of it, I felt that there was a real honest ending there um, because of the type of person, the type of character that he was. Yeah. As I said, don't want to go into too much detail again for anybody who's not read book three yet, you know, as to what actually happens to him. But I don't think I'm letting too many cats out the bag when I say that he ends up on the Bass Rock. Indeed. Um, which even I knew before reading your books was quite notorious uh, historically. <laughs> it certainly wasn't the best place to be. <laughs> <laughs> and I've actually visited the Bass Rock. I don't know if you did this part of your yes, I work did. on uh-huh. it, did you? Um, and I, I found it very interesting. Um, I didn't actually get onto it. Mm-hmm. Um, the day that we were going across, it was quite choppy and it was making it right. difficult for us to be, be able to land. Um, but even just being in a boat and being up close to it, um, after having seen it from the mainland, um, I just thought to myself at the time, I wouldn't want to have to try and get away from here. <laughs> well, you, you couldn't actually get away from it. No one ever escaped from it. Yeah. Um, you'd need to be a hell of a strong swimmer for a start. And also um, the diet that they were on. Yeah. It was iron rations and some. Um, because the only water that the poor souls drank was the water that they ga- gathered from the the holes in the rock. Right. They weren't given water. Mm-hmm. And th- there was actually on the very top of the, the rock, there was a grassy patch where there were some sheep. So you would think, well, that was to feed everyone on the wow. rock, but it wasn't. It was only for the garrison. <laughs> the men were just eating gruel and drinking well, quite often filthy water. Yeah. So a lot of them actually died of malnutrition mm-hmm. or uh, some terrible illness, although one or two of them um, did survive to tell the tale. Mm-hmm. And one of the most interesting ones who does appear in the book now and again is uh, Sandy Peden. Yeah. He, he actually got off the rock. He actually is such an interesting character. You can almost write a book about him. He had been captured and sent to the Bass Rock. Um, He was actually a very gentle man and very much against violence. And he wasn't very popular with the societies or the the avid covenanters because of that. But anyway, to cut a long story short, he was sent to the Bass Rock um, to do four years. 
And after the four years were up, he thought, well, I've done my time. Maybe the great and the good, I'll write to the Privy Council and say mm-hmm. to them, I've done my time. Can I come off? So the Privy Council got the letter and they sent for him. And Sandy thought, well, maybe I'm going to get off. So he was taken back to Edinburgh, taken before the Privy Council, only to discover that that was the last of their thoughts. What they were going to do with him was to send him to the Americas as a slave. And he was marched with a whole lot of other covenanters um, down to Leith Docks and put on the St. Michael um, to be sent to America. Now, the person who was behind the paying of the the boat was a London businessman. So the boat had to go to Gravesend first. And Sandy was credited with having second sight. There's a lot of evidence of things that he said were going to happen or he saw things happening when he was miles away from Mm -hmm. them. But anyway, he told the, the other captives, don't worry, we're not going anywhere, we won't be slaves. And they all laughed at him. But... When they docked um, at Gravesend and the businessman came on to inspect um, his charges, he discovered that they weren't felons, that they were men um, who had been locked up for their spiritual beliefs and he refused to have any more to do with it. And there was quite a ding-dong between the captain and the businessman and eventually the captain just opened the, the hull hop and said, right, out you come, I've had enough. I've got no more responsibility for it. And out they all piled. And very slowly and gently, they all walked back to Scotland. <laughs> so, in a way, justice being served. Yes. In the end. And also, he was, he was proved that him upstairs had told them something <laughs> that was actually going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I must admit, I, I think probably be quite interesting to read a book about Sandy Peden. Um, oh, there's, just, there's, lot, there's lots more. It's unbelievable. Yeah, just, you know, just based on the, the bits and pieces from your own books, you know, uh-huh. um, it just comes across uh, as, as a real character, you know. The only person I've ever come across who actually has been buried three times. That doesn't happen very often. I'm not going to why and how. It, it did happen. And, I mean, he actually foretold this happening. Right. So it makes you think, well, what did he really know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. So obviously, when Lucas gets caught with the John Sproul, who is an apothecary um, yes. in modern parlance, a chemist. <laughs> yes, and John Sproul um, is a real person. Oh, well, do you know, that was my next question. You know, right. how real was he or how much was, uh, you know, a kind of amalgamation of people that you'd read about? No, he, he, you know? he was entirely real. And as a kind of um, afterthought, long after this, when it was all over and he did live to tell the tale, mm-hmm. um, he's credited, would you believe, for having backed the slave trade in Glasgow. Oh, really? So Aye, yes. So there were two sides to him. To me, um, before that, he seemed very much a man of principle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But once he got out and went on with the rest of his life, I thought, oh, my goodness, what's happened here? Whether it was being on the Bass Rock that did it to him or not, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, there's been quite a a bit of correspondence um, in the Herald back and forward a few months ago about him. Um, and how um, he shouldn't be uh, given any of the reverence mm-hmm. because um, he actually made a pile of money yeah. from that. Yeah. But then I, he had lost everything and he had to start again. Yeah. So possibly um, 
maybe to try and put a bit of a positive spin on it for him, it was necessity um, that maybe drove him to it, you know, from a business point of view. I think so. Yeah. I, I, that's the only conclusion I can come to because they thought differently then. Yeah, absolutely. They did. Uh, and yeah. it was a matter of uh, starting again with nothing and mm -hmm. where do I go and this is an opportunity mm -hmm. and I go down that line. I could be entirely wrong, but yeah. it just seems so out of character. Mm, yeah, exactly. Uh, especially when you consider everything that he did for Lucas to try mm -hmm. and help him, you know, because obviously when he gets to The Rock, he really does suffer, Lucas, yes. um, partly because of the conditions, but also more than probably because of his own personal character, not mm -hmm. being able to deal with these situations. Absolutely. And I... He just really gives him, you know, or tries his best to give him everything, you know, and every support that he possibly can. Very um, much so. You know, which, again, kind of completely counteracts, you know, what happened later on, as you say, about him getting yes. involved. Yes. This, this, by this time, you're into the 1700s. It's all yeah. past. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe as you grow older, you change. I don't mm -hmm. know. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I always think that... Um, he reached out to somebody who had terrible mental problems. Yeah. And did his best for him. Yeah, yeah. So, obviously, um, what happens on the Bass Rock happens on the Bass Rock. Um, when we move a bit further forward, um, John gets tied up again, if you like, metaphorically speaking, with uh, another rampant covenant hunter, uh, James Rennick. <laughs> Yeah, uh, James Rennick is something else. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, having, you know, read about him in the book, I had this <coughs> immediate picture of the, the, the sort of old-style firebrand preacher, you know, standing either at, an, at a pulpit or, you know, in a field, waving a Bible in his hand and, you know, screaming at the, the congregation, you know, about, you know, what they should and what they shouldn't do, you know. But at the same time, being very, very convincing um, and getting people to fall along with, you know, the way he's seen things, which speaks greatly for him as an orator. Oh, yes, he was very, very good. But the thing that, that always surprises me is um, when he started, um, when, when he saw Donald Cargo being hung at the grass market, he was only 18. Mm. He was dead by the time he was 26. Yeah. And it all happened. Mm. And also, when he was finally captured and marched to the garrison in Edinburgh, the garrison captain took one look at him and said, is this the boy that was causing all the bother? He was very small, very slim, fair-haired, mm. and he looked young for his age. Yeah. Now, if you think of perhaps a couple of thousand Covenanters grouped in a field mm -hmm. and this wee boy walks out, they must have thought, what's coming here? But then when he opened his mouth, um, he seemed to have the power of persuasion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He definitely was something else. Yeah, and it was really interesting because obviously you talk about the, the second proclamation that gets made um, by the Covenanters. This time uh, they go directly to Lanark, um, right. which is a real slap in the face of the authorities, in my opinion, much more so than the first declaration when it was posted. Um, yes. And again, obviously this is historical fact, 
Um, and I've I've looked it up myself, <laughs> confirming it. Not that I didn't believe you, but you know it was interesting. Just in case. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was just the fact that they these were so bold. You yes. know, I mean they mm. didn't do it in the darkness. You know, they no. went up there in full daylight, big mm. crowd of them, made a big party of it, as it were, mm-hmm. and on they went. You know. Right under the and, nose of the authorities. Yeah, and the only thing that was with them was um, it was January, so that probably there was less people about. That's the mm. only thing that they had. Otherwise, it was really a confrontation. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, I, again, I think it speaks for the boldness of Renick as a, as a yes. character, you know, mm-hmm. to sort of conceive of the idea of doing this. Um, and then, of course, he, <clears throat> it kind of leads to quite a few problems for him um, going forward because that's, I might be wrong, but in my opinion, that seems to be the thing that gets him more noticed. Uh, yes, and therefore becomes, so. yep. you know, the public enemy uh-huh. number one, as it were. Yeah. Um, he, he's now in the same boat as Cameron. Yeah. We get yep. rid of him, we get rid of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, eventually, um, that's exactly what's going to happen. But in between, he causes quite a stramash. He certainly does. <laughs> <laughs> but again, rather interestingly, um, for me, I found myself wanting them to succeed. You know, right. although I know from a historical perspective that that wasn't going to happen, but. Mm-hmm. When I'm reading it, I'm finding myself thinking, oh, come on, you know, you've got to do it. You know, you, you, you've got to get this. You, and when he's making his escape, you know, oh, yeah, you've got to get away. You must get away, you know. And when he's coming back, I'm thinking, no, don't come back. <laughs> don't come back. <laughs> well, he was the kind of man who had very little thought for his own mm, safety. Yeah. In fact, I don't think he had any thought for it. Um, he really didn't care what was going to happen to him. And that was true right until, mm-hmm. you know, the bitter end. And that's where, if I could maybe sort of interject, in that um, Robert Hamilton, um, who had been the leader at Boswell Bridge, the Battle of Boswell Bridge, and had turned tail and run away and left mm-hmm. all the Covenanters to a terrible fate, and it was awful. Yeah. And John Steele had been one of them and obviously had never forgiven them for it. Yeah. Now, Robert Hamilton was the man that really hyped up Rennick to go back. But Robert Hamilton didn't. He stayed safely in Holland Mm -hmm. and sent fiery letters to Rennick Mm -hmm. to keep the hype going. Yeah, to keep him moving. And and that is where the politics of it comes in. Mm -hmm. And that's the bit that really I find rather unpleasant. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, when they're in Holland, obviously they come across him. Again, mm-hmm. and, and John Steele, you know, quite rightly, um, is annoyed at the fact that this man seems to have such a position yes. um, after what had happened at Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. And he tries to tell people about it, but they're not really prepared to, no. to take that on board, you no. know. And I just, I just think when I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, just go up and, you know, bat him, kill him, well- you know. <laughs> I did actually think about putting that in and then I thought, no, he wouldn't do that. Yeah. Not in a a public place. Mm. Um, Because whatever else John had, he had dignity. Absolutely. Yeah. And, of course, he does, while he's in Holland, he does actually get revenge on Gabby. Oh, yes. 
which took me by surprise. Right. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously we know that he'd escaped, but uh-huh. never, in a, never uh-huh. in a million years would I have imagined, you know, he would have he would have gone to, to Holland. Um, but you see, it was quite easy to go and get a boat, yeah, at yeah. least, and, you know, hightail it away. And since he now had the money to do it, mm. he did. Yeah, but no, it was, was, it was good. And he was still the wee rat bag that he always was. <laughs> exactly, absolutely. <laughs> and that's why it was so good that he gets his comeuppance, you know, and, and John still gets a, a little bit of the closure uh, in that respect. Um, but I, I, I was also interested by um, Jonas Hawthorne and his father, Tobias, um, who obviously come into the book when, when they're in Holland, Tobias being a minister. Yes. Um, and uh, Jonas is his son. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I, I thought they were only going to be there for a couple of chapters. Oh, no. Um, and it turned out not to be so, especially Jonas. Yes, and he's we'll an important on, thread. We'll, we'll yep. go on to that uh, a little later. Um, but it was interesting to find that these were people who essentially were Scottish. Although Jonas... I'm right, he was born in, in Holland, so therefore yes, he would have been yes. Dutch. But to all intents and purposes, he's a Scotsman. Uh, yes, because yes. whenever whenever you're Scottish, you know, whether it's through birth and you're born here or your parents or your ancestors have moved elsewhere, you're always Scottish, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I've found that to be true when, when I've travelled. Um, and it was interesting that they, they were able to speak Scots. Yes. Uh, that was quite important because it would have been very um, unbalanced mm-hmm. um, with Jonah speaking English, yeah. you know, and John or whatever speaking in Scots. Yeah. Um, so the fact that he had um, a Scottish father, I thought, well, yes, he would. Mm-hmm. He would. And uh, you, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he would. I'm sure he would. Yeah. I mean, do you think in a real world situation, um, the, the fact that it's two separate languages to all intents and purposes would have created a barrier. Yes, yes, um, because there are a number of words in Scots um, that just don't ring true mm-hmm. if you translate them into English. Yeah. And it, it gave them um, a connection between each other, that they were comfortable with each other and they knew what each was thinking mm-hmm. because they were um, in the kind of... Um, the same mind plane. Yeah. And I felt that was quite important. Although Jonas is a lot younger than John, mm. um, John actually looked at Jonas kind of like a younger version of himself, mm. you know, who still had a lot to learn. Yeah. Um, John had learned it, but John was still on his learning curve. And I think he'll be on his learning curve for quite a while. Uh-huh. Um, because he is an impetuous kind of person. <laughs> yeah, that definitely seems to come across more uh, in a book two into book three and then on into book four, um, the the sort of act now, think later side yes. of, of John Steele. Yes, um, and sometimes um, regret it. Yeah, and, and I think his wife, Marion, uh, I'm, I'm pretty certain it's in book three, at, at one point... Um, she kind of points it out to him. Yes. You know, and she she sort of lays the law down to him, but at the same time, I think she realises that he's not going to change. Yeah, she, she knows that. <laughs> but she tells, she tells him anyway. But exactly. the, interesting, 
the interesting thing about Marion is if you go way back to book one, it was Marion that really encouraged John mm-hmm. yeah. to go to the first meeting mm-hmm. in the first place. Yeah, so she had been living with that regret ever mm-hmm. since, you know, as the consequences have unfolded. So she's been on a journey too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I must admit, one of the things that I found when I was reading it, um, and I don't know if other people have found this, um, but I think I would have been quite good friends with John and Marion had I been alive at that time. And I knew, uh-huh. you know, because they, they were very kind of independent people. And I'm yes. quite an independent sort of person as well, you know. They didn't um, tend to uh, follow um, what everyone else was doing. Mm. But also um, they were able to see, to a certain extent, um, because things were a bit black and white, yeah, that's maybe the wrong way to put it, but <laughs> perhaps today. But in, in a way, um, they saw things very definitely mm. in a way that today we get lost in a morass of grey. Yeah, absolutely. But along the way, the, the, the notes that I've read about them is they were well known as having a good sense of humour. They like mm. to laugh. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, th- that endears them to me um, for a start. You know, they're, they're not grim. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, for all, it was quite a violent time, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, everything that was going on with the, the Covenanters and stuff like that. Um, it was a simpler time as well. You know, as you say, black and white, perhaps not the right way to describe it, maybe more right and wrong. People yes. knew definitely that, what was right, what was wrong. There wasn't no, that they, grey. They, they didn't know that it was right or wrong. Right. They were told it was right <laughs> and it was wrong. Yeah. And it depended on the kind of mind you had, mm-hmm. whether you questioned it. Yeah. yeah. But most people didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, again, that kind of comes back to the whole uh, thing about belief, doesn't it? You know, if yeah. you believe in something, you mm-hmm. don't really need to get some sort of physical proof given to you you just believe it you know and people who are less likely to believe a bit like myself um are the ones who are going to question things Um, not so much when you're small um and you're being educated if you like by your parents but once you grow up and you start to think more as an independent person then Mm -hmm. you kind of start to question things that people are telling you are right and wrong and And also when you perhaps see things happening yeah and it kind of triggers off a wee kind of question in your mind and it sits there and then you question it a bit more. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's just human nature, isn't it? Then, Aye. At the end of the day, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the interesting things as well about when he was going to Holland, because um, obviously uh, Jonas takes him to his grandfather's farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and John, being a farmer, quite naturally starts to think to himself, I wonder if there's things I can learn here. Yes. You know, or is there things that I can teach them, you know, methods mm-hmm. that I use, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, that just shows you the humanity of the man. You yes, know, I hope so. While he's yeah. caught up in all this political intrigue, if you like, uh-huh. um, deep down, he's still just a farmer. Yes. You and know. the land <laughs> the land at the end of the day is what really matters to him Absolutely. and his relationship to it, which is quite a good way to be. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, he's not there a great length of time in Holland and he comes back to Scotland ostensibly to deliver from James Rennick to the, the society. uh, societies, uh-huh. you know, a, a progress report. And of course, unbeknownst to, to John, when he's back... Rennick is already starting to make his way back. Mm-hmm. 
um, which I thought was a really interesting sort of dual thread to be following at the same time. Right. Because obviously, on the one hand, you get the impression that John thinks, right, I've washed my hands of James Rennick. You know, he probably knows that at some stage he's going to come back, but, you know, maybe a good few years down the line or whatever. And then when he does come across him again, it's a shock, but it's not a shock. I got that kind of sense. You I know, think at I the back of his mind, um, he knew that here was somebody um, who was going to affect his life much more than he wanted it to be affected. And he tried to put it to the back of his mind, yeah. but it was really forced on him. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that, again, because of the kind of person that he was, he probably wouldn't have been able to not do it. No, I, don't, know, I, he, I, I couldn't imagine him saying um, absolutely and categorically no. Yeah. Um, it would, it would um, burn his ears, yeah. you know, by giving him um, his viewpoint. But when it came to the point of, perhaps saving Rennick from himself mm. so that he could go on and do a bit more, he would do that. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, he, he obviously had the opportunity to, to maybe get away from it all, you know, Aye. with his wife and his children, just leave, maybe go to America or whatever it might be um, and, and start again. But obviously his sense of right prevailed, if you like, in that respect. You know, I think um, that's where the sense of the land mattering um, comes into it um, because he felt that's where he belonged yeah. and I am not going to give that up whatever yeah. happens absolutely absolutely yeah with book three obviously as we know it all follows on you know from one to two to three but when you were writing book three because there seems to be a lot more threads are starting to come together was it difficult to kind of pull them together or by that stage were you so into it that you know it was just a case of plucking one thread from here and one from there and then you know tying them all up it was it was more the second right. it was more the second um because things were um sort of hotting up mm -hmm. and things were coming in from different directions and it seemed to me that i couldn't leave them out mm. so yeah. That's why you just got doom, 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 you know, <laughs> uh, and it somehow seemed right at that point. Yeah. So let's have a wee look at book four then. And again, you've got this wonderful poem right at the beginning, which is really great. Um, I love the title of it, Geese Turning. Oh, it is great, that, yes. <laughs> yes. When, I, when I see that, it just, it just made me laugh. And again, um, I just wanted to to read a wee bit of it. In bricht summer, summer sun and it intercan pass, a bloody skirmish men slavery bound for hoden to their lord, for gainsaying the king. Some set free return to the law of beauty. And that was a really, really interesting bit of the book to read. Um oh, you good. Know, that that rescue. Because it, it kind of showed to me really the similarity between John and Jonas. Right, yes. And I really, at that point, I thought to myself, do you know what, Jonas is a young version of John Steele. Hmm. Well, that's for, good. For all, he was born in a different country mm -hmm. and he was raised in a different country. The absolute bottom line as a person was that he was the same person and yes, he knew yes. what was right and what was wrong and he would do his best to prevent 
wrong from happening. You know? Well, that's great that it came across. Um, and, and it was also <laughs> also made me laugh as well because obviously Clavers is getting his tail tugged. <laughs> <laughs> Because, <laughs> I mean, obviously, at that point, I'm imagining that Claverhouse was probably thinking to himself that although John Steele hadn't gone away, he was becoming less of an issue for him. That's right. Um, and therefore, he maybe was relaxing a wee bit too much um, in that respect, you know, so that when John Steele pops up again, it's a surprise, but I don't really think it was a surprise to Claverhouse that John Steele was involved. Well, I would think that where things suddenly go wrong um, for Claverhouse in the way that they do, um, where it's uh, quite clever, mm. um, he's not surprised to discover who's behind it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I mean, obviously we've known we've known through the, the other three books that he has this respect for John Steele, perhaps not as a man, but as someone who knows what to do and how to get it done. I think he sees him as an opponent. Mm-hmm. Whom, in actual fact, in his heart, he thinks, I'm not going to get the better of this one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not always... that he would ever admit it. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. But um, it was good because in book four, they all kind of come back together again, you know, um, because of what happens at the, the rescue and all the rest of it. And it just kind of basically, it's like somebody's grabbed the pot and thrown it up in the air. Yeah. And let's uh-huh. see what lands outside the pot and let's uh-huh. see what lands back inside the pot. Very much so, yes. <laughs> and that really appealed to me. Um, because sometimes when you when you're reading books that are in a series, they kind of start to tail away, you know, and you kind of lose interest in them unless there's That's something right. happens that kind of jolts you back into you know oh my god I need to think about this again when I'm reading this you know I'm not just sitting looking at it and scanning the words Mm -hmm. and I think that in book four does that well that's why I also chose the the title Broken Times Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, because I wanted to kind of uh, make people think well why is it broken yeah yeah absolutely I must admit when I with the title when I first saw the title it didn't occur to me what was going to happen in it as right. that being the title. But as mm-hmm. you say, once I had read and this had happened and they were all getting back together again, so to speak, it was like the wee light bulb moment. Oh, that's why that's there. Yes. You know, this is what's happened. And again, not wanting to give away too much, but I really thought that a, a certain captain had got his comeuppance finally. And you threw another spanner in the works, Ethel. (laughs) Aye. That particular one deserves all he gets. (laughs) And more. (laughs) But the thing is that when, obviously when I read it, you know, and he is to all intents and purposes a goner, but he, he comes through it again. But at the same time as well, I'm thinking, yes, we've got rid of him. I was a bit sad about it. But then when he kind of comes back, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, because I want I want him in there. Uh-huh. You know, I, probably more so than Claverhouse. Right. Um, because he's such a single-minded person, you yes. know, and all he is interested in is getting John Steele. Yes, he's, he's obsessed. You know, and it, it doesn't seem to matter what 
is there, comes across him as, as a barrier. He's going to mm-hmm. find a way around it. And right. the, the two, uh, when, he, when he comes across Rennick and uh, Jonas Hawthorne, um, and he obviously realises, you know, that they're not who that they're meant to be, that they're shady, shall we say. I'm sure at the back of his mind, he's maybe thinking to himself, this could be a way for me to get to John Steele. Yes, yes. You know, yes. Um, he, he, he sees that as his total focus mm-hmm. um, to the detriment of everything else because um, in other ways, he probably was quite a fine military man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the obsession um, turned him into uh, a monster. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the fact that he couldn't get the better of them Mm-hmm. That so, made it worse. So far, because we don't know mm-hmm. what's going to happen in the next two books. Well, <laughs> so, in, so in, far. <laughs> in book five, um, he is definitely going to meet his nemesis. Ah, good, 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 good. That's what I like to hear. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, just touching on, on book five, uh, obviously you, you said to me in the email, you know, that it's getting delayed um, because of the whole uh-huh. pandemic situation, which I think is really quite sad um, because anybody who has is reading the books just now or who has read the books, I'm sure like myself, the waiting with bated breath for the next instalment to come. Um, Well, that's that's really good to know that people are keen to know the next bit. That's that's encouraging. And the fact that it's getting delayed, albeit through no fault of anybody's, really, Mm -hmm. um, it just kind of deflates you a wee bit. You know, because okay. I was so looking forward to to, to book five, um, and and then obviously book six, um, but when you said in the email, you know that it was getting held up, I was like, oh. <laughs> I was on a doubt. Well, <laughs> the, the the one for book five um, is called Lost Times. Mm, yeah. So it's getting a wee bit uh, wee bit here and now. Yeah, I and because you can I mean, I know. In my own mind, you know, I know that it's all rattling towards some sort of conclusion. Um, but at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I hope there's a seventh book. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> don't say that. I'm struggling with six as it is, because six is meant to be the, the, the wrap-up. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. I'm only at chapter four with it. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I'm already finding that it's quite tricky Tying up ends. Yeah. You know, yeah. tying up ends and trying not to do it in too obvious a way. Yeah. And I, I think for, from my own personal point of view, I think it's because I, I have invested a lot in the characters through the books. Um, All right. And, and therefore, I'm desperate to know what's going to happen to them for good or for ill. Um, obviously, um, <clears throat> excuse me, obviously from the point of view of John and Marion, um, I want only the best to mm-hmm. ever occur for them, no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the likes of Crichton, yeah, you know, I know he's got probably going to meet a nasty end and it'll be quite good when it comes, but I'll be sad <laughs> when it comes as well. You know, <clears throat> kind of similar to the whole Gabby thing, you know, because yeah. when when he sort of betrays John Steele and injures his sister-in-law and all that kind of stuff, I found myself really hating him, whereas before I'd had a bit of sympathy for him because, uh-huh. you know, he was this person who 
had no home and, you know, was wandering in the countries. <laughs> exactly, yeah, you know. And then he turns out to be this nasty piece of work. Yes, yes, very much. <laughs> and he gets away and then he gets caught up again and he gets his comeuppance from John Steele and that's like, yeah. And the fact that it wasn't a violent end made it better for me as well. Oh, right, right. Um, I think it, had he suffered violently at the hands of John Steele <laughs> to end him, that would have been okay. Right. But from my own personal point of view, I think the way that it gets handled and how he deals with them probably injures him much more than mm-hmm. any kind of physical punishment does. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I, I think he probably um, does realise that in spite of all that I've done, Mm. particularly to this man. Yeah. He is not serving it back mm. at like revenge on a cold plate. He's yeah, not. Absolutely. And that probably would upset him. Because mm-hmm. he's and, not that kind of person. Yeah, and, and that's the thing with John's character as well. When you think of all the nasty things that happen to him throughout the books, you know, um having to go on the run and, you know, missing his family and all the rest of it and losing his farms and all that kind of stuff. You would expect that to make someone very, very bitter. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. And it doesn't, you know, he 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 accepts that it's it's just how it's happened. Mm-hmm. And he's always striving to get past it. But because, right. because of his character and needing to get involved with things that he shouldn't he get involved up. in. He slips up a few times. <laughs> he kind of gets dragged back. It's, I'm, I'm trying to think of a... <clears throat> I think it's in the God, the film The Godfather. Um, I think it's in a, is it the final one, Godfather 4, where Michael um, says something along the lines of, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. You know? That's it, and, in a nutshell, yes. When, when, when this was happening to John, that came to my mind. Aye, you very know? much so. Although uh-huh. it's two totally different things, it's mm-hmm. the, it's the, the character. You know, he thinks mm-hmm. he's getting past it and then something happens. It's, it's all got it. to do with the kind of person that you are. Yeah. And that in spite of yourself, you will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you don't want to, mm-hmm. but you do. And yeah. that, I think, uh, is part and parcel of uh, the human psyche. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that comes across really well in the books. You know, I, I do believe that you've captured that. Um, well, with, with with all of the characters um, that I've I've come across within the books, um, you really seem to have nailed them. You know, obviously with some of the historical real characters, um, it's maybe a wee bit easier because there are uh, documents or whatever you know that kind of point you to how they were. Um, but with the the fictional ones that you've wove into the story, you've given them that same character traits um, which for me anyway makes them much real much more oh, real good. that's, that's super the thing I would say about the, the real characters is when you do the research um, you find that depending on uh, who's writing it mm-hmm. the impression can be a wee bit different yeah yeah, yeah. so you, you kind of read several different impressions and you think well somewhere in the middle perhaps just perhaps is how that person is. So in actual fact, dealing with the real characters can, uh, in a way, be more difficult. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and of course, that's where um, research really pays off. You know, you don't look at like Wikipedia, for instance, and you read up about a Claverhouse on Wikipedia, and you go, "Oh, that's what he was like," because Mm -hmm. it's probably not he was like. So you then find other sources, you know, and as you say, you look at several, and then you kind of come somewhere in the in the middle of it, you know, and you're probably going to get quite close to it. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people don't realise um, when you're writing books, there is a lot of research, even if it's a pure fiction, mm-hmm. there's still a lot of research needs to come okay. into it because fiction in many ways is based in fact. Oh, aye, definitely. You know? Um, But obviously, if you're writing something that has a historical context and has characters who are noted in history, then, you know, you do have to really make sure that you're getting right on the ball. Well, Um, as near as you possibly can. Um, The the, the thing that that comes out of it is that particularly with the likes of um, Claverhouse, Mm -hmm. um, in putting my nose a wee bit above the parapet, um, a lot of people don't like that. Yeah. They yeah. really don't like it. And quite interestingly, um, I, I read again quite recently a book by it was James Hogg um, called The Brownie of Bodbeck. And it's about the, uh, the Ettrick Valley yeah. and what happened there, which was pretty terrible. And one of the things that uh, James Hogg said at the end of it all, um, that he tried, he really tried to find something he could see that would be good. Mm-hmm. about John Graham and I failed completely mm-hmm. so that was his opinion yeah yeah and do you find um that you're reading more about that period or in and around that period since you started doing the books than possibly oh, you would have done oh yes yes because I want to uh, I'm always curious to find out now what take has somebody else got on it? Mm-hmm. Is it anywhere near, you know, what I've got? Mm-hmm. But I've got so far into how I see them yeah. that although I'm interested to see how someone else would react to them, it doesn't change my own reaction. Yeah, um, That's quite embedded by now. Because mm-hmm. as I said to you before, <laughs> I, I find uh, that I'm now looking at things differently and I'm going to try and find out things that I didn't know because they're popping up in your book, you know, mm. and I want to know a bit more about it. And I've, well, learned, I've learned a lot about that period of mm-hmm. Scottish history that I knew nothing about. Yes, well, that's, that's, that's really super. Um, because if you can share something and stimulate a curiosity, um, that's a good thing. And um, that's what I try to do, for instance, well, I've not been able to do it recently, but uh, when I would do sort of speaking events um, and I would speak about the background and try to word it in such a way that I would pull people in. Yeah. Um, and, and afterwards, quite a number of people would say to me, I'm going to have a wee look um, and see what else I can find out. Mm. We never got that at school. Exactly. I've heard that once, I've heard it a hundred times. Is this really Scottish history? The short answer is yes. (laughs) You know, for good or bad, there it is. Um, Have a wee look. It's where you came from. Yeah. And another interesting byproduct for me is that uh, I've actually started to to seek out more things in Scots. 
Um, and I don't know if you, you're aware, on Indie Live Radio, we, we were featuring as an artist of the week uh, a young singer, Iona Fife, who sings in Scots. Yes. And yes. she took on Spotify because when she was listing her songs on Spotify, she couldn't put down that they were in Scots because it wasn't on there as a recognised language. It had, okay. it, no, it had Welsh, it right. had Cornish, it had all of those things, but wow. it didn't have Scots. Right. Um, so she decided to take it upon herself, and it is now there. Good um, for her. You know, so um, I'm, I was hoping to, to maybe get an interview with her. Um, she did one uh, with her daytime show, uh, Ladies, Val and Marlene, uh, and I'd love to get one done. Um, I think you should try because that sounds that sounds as if it would be of real interest. Yeah, and oh, yeah. as a result of that, I've come across a lot of other people who are starting to really identify now as Scots, mm-hmm. you know, and they're using the language, or in some instances perhaps not correctly using the language, but they're making that attempt. Yes, you know, because they're I beginning think there's, to realize, a, there's a resurgence. Yeah. of the fact that perhaps the Scots are able to express themselves mm. a little bit more different yeah. than the English. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and some of the words that we have um, are very explicit. Yeah. And when you try to translate it into English, you need two or three words to say the same thing. I know. I, I, way of thinking. I I'm see, biased. I've <laughs> seen a thing on Twitter recently where I can't remember who it was that put it up originally, but basically they were wanting people to say what their three favourite Scottish words were. Um, so things like glacet, you know, and all that kind of stuff, you know. And I was like, I've got too many. I can't say, you know, this is my three favourites. Yes, where, where would you find only three? I know, you know, the, I, the fact that it is so regional variant as well, yes. you know, as you said to me the last time around, you know, there are differences between how they would speak Scots down towards the border from, say, up in the central belt where Glasgow and Edinburgh and that is, and there would be vi- probably big differences between Glasgow and Edinburgh then as there is now. Yes. You know? And that's all makes it richer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it does. Yeah, oh, it definitely does. It definitely does. So I think we're we're kind of rapidly going to be running out of time soon. Um, just very, very briefly, um, in terms of when you know book five is going to come out, because I know we're looking at a next year now. Yes. Um, the publisher has said um, um, early twenty twenty one. Right, uh, 22. 22. Sorry, I'm a year behind. I've, I've been locked up for so long, I've forgotten where I am. <laughs> I was just, just going to say, I can, I can empathise with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you think then that book six will be quite quick behind it then? Well, I've reached chapter four mm-hmm. um, with book six, and I'm just about to enter quite a tricky bit right. um, with it. Um, and I'm trying to give a broad sweep, mm. but trying to carry people, um, you know, with me yeah. before I go back to the kind of the personal things. Mm. But you need the personal bit all the way through. Definitely. definitely. And in, in book six, um, you'll discover how John deals with afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And have you found it easier then to, to write 
during the lockdown or has it made it a bit harder because you're not able to go out and, you know, sort of visit libraries or places of interest to pick up bits and pieces of historical knowledge? Um, well, yes and no, because uh, to be quite honest, I've got quite a wealth of information mm. that I can easily refer to. Right. Um, and it hasn't been a bad thing um, not to be adding any more information, mm -hmm. but saying to myself, right, what you've got, go with that. Mm -hmm. But then it doesn't work out because the bit that I'm at just now, I had got to a certain point and thought to myself, I don't know that. So I yeah. was forced to. But yeah. there hasn't been a lot of it. And it has given me, um, how would I say, space to just quietly walk about in the open air. Mm -hmm. And think. Yeah. Um, and when I'm thinking, well, perhaps, you know, as the as the as we used to see the man in the yellow van will come for you, um I can hear them talking to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I know that sounds ridiculous, but it, it just comes. And then later on I think, so that's where they want to go. Yeah. And I would then check the information that I've got mm. to see, well, would that be viable? I mean, or would be, it be true? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, that that's not ridiculous to me at all because I find that I'm not actually reading the books anymore. They're telling me. Right, well, that's great. That's you know, great. I, I, in, my, in my head, I hear probably a completely different way that John Steele speaking to, to the way that you might hear it. But I can actually physically, when I'm looking at the page and I'm reading what it is, I can hear John Steele saying X, Y, Z, or Jonas Hawthorne saying X, Y, Z. Do you know what I mean? Um, that's how invested I've become in the books well, and the characters. <laughs> well, that's great, because when you're writing, I think every writer would say that you want connection. Yeah, absolutely. And if you can get the connection... Um, it's a, a wonderful feeling to know that you've actually made it, even if it's just with one person. Mm, it's great. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's as I said, it has made a big difference to me um, reading these books, um, both personally and, you know, my knowledge historically um, has been greatly enhanced. Um, so I'm just desperate now for, for book five. <laughs> Well, um, I'll see. I'll, I will personally see that you get a copy as quick as. Because <laughs> um, I've got the I've got the cover done. Yeah. So, um, and it's been accepted. You know that they're happy with what I've done for the cover. Um, so I've got the cover. Um, we just need to get it all pulled together. Yeah. Because because what we've decided to do um, is. Obviously, when I notified uh, my colleague Fiona, who does all the technical wizardry and pulls it all together for me, because I've got so many other things to do, <laughs> not that she doesn't, what we're going to do is, so it's going to be next year that we're going to be dealing with it. So what we would do is just prior to when we broadcast the next one, uh, we would run the first couple. Uh, so the first four books chats would be run beforehand just oh to give people a wee reminder, you know, right. so just to say, you know, kind of like previously in NCIS, this. Right. 
<laughs> although, although obviously it wouldn't be NCIS, you know. <laughs> that actually brings an interesting thought to me. Would you like to see it making its way to, you know, like the big screen or the small screen even, you know? Short being... answer to that is yes. Yeah. yeah. In actual fact, my editor, now it would be about two years ago, year and a half ago, um, she um, tried to punt for yeah. that. Right. And um, STV did express, or ITV did express um, an interest. Mm. And then came back and said it would be too costly. Right. I'm thinking, obviously, in terms of things like Outlander. Uh-huh. You know, um, I knew people that had been watching that and had read the books and they were always going on and on about it. And I had never actually seen a single episode of it until about probably just prior to the lockdown kicking in last year. Um, and I'm now completely caught up in it. Mm-hmm. Um, although I do realise that there are quite a few historical inaccuracies. Oh, yes. In it, in yes. But uh-huh. I kind of accept that because the, the lady who's written it, obviously she's an American and, uh-huh. you know, so it's kind of stilted from her point of view. But um, as a piece of television drama... It's pretty good. It's good, you know, and it's good escapism. Um, uh-huh. But been reading, you know, as I've been reading your books, I'm thinking to myself more and more, I would love to see that, you know, making... You know, well, that would that would be my dream was to see John Steele just walk across the the screen. Yeah, and, and, I mean, and, and be John. Who it would be? I haven't a clue. Yeah. I, I would. I, I would venture to say that I would love to play John Steele, but I'm All too right. wee. I'm, I'm too wee and too old, <laughs> <laughs> and probably too round. Uh, so I would probably make a better Gabby. <laughs> Say that Gabby was was very small and very thin, so you don't qualify in that, right. and you've got a much better nature. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll need to think of somebody else then that I could make. <laughs> but listen, so we'll end it on that rather cheery. Cheery, Ethel. It's been great speaking to you again. You too. Listen, you you have a wonderful weekend for what's left of it. And thanks for all your time and your patience. It's been an absolute pleasure. 